Voted the third most livable city in the world, Adelaide truly is designed for life. In the Experience Adelaide podcast, hear stories from the people who are creating great experiences and opportunities in the CBD as we showcase the amazing events, hotels, businesses, schools, and more right in the heart of our city. It's not every day a brand new school opens up in the middle of the CBD, but Botanic High did just that in 2019. SA's first vertical secondary school, it was designed to make a positive contribution to Adelaide's life and identity. In this episode, inaugural Botanic High principal Alastair Brown talks about the learning opportunities infused by city life in this future-focused school. As an educator, one of your dreams is the ability to start a school from scratch. And then when the reality hits you that you have that as a, you know, an option in life, um, you suddenly realise the enormity of it. We're developing something that we hope will be there in 100, 150, 200 years' time. And this is the foundation of it. When you come on board as a principal for a position like that, you come on as a single entity and the responsibility is then to lead the development of that school. It has that amazing amount of excitement attached to it, but at three o'clock in the morning when your eyes are still wide awake and you're staring at the ceiling, um, it also has a huge responsibility that sits there as well. Yes, a massive responsibility, let alone that that was a very well-known piece of land. If we look at it retrospectively, the um, original plan was for the school to be in Lot 14. Um, and if we look at Lot 14 at the moment, you know, as much as it's an incredibly exciting development, we would have been on a building site um, for three to four years in that early phase. Um, I, I actually think it was an inspired move to take on the Reed building. Um, you know, we, we have an environment that our kids actually love in that they're connected to you know, the plant world that's outside. It does not feel like you're in the city. Um, it has an amazing spatial feeling that you, know, you could be out in the country as far as the school's concerned. So I think it was quite an inspired move and it's probably worked out better than even the planning that you know, was in place when it began. I think one of the things that you know, really came home to me was there were 200 educator planning days before an architect was allowed to start putting a design together. Um, and that's quite different to how we've normally designed schools. We've traditionally taken a design and you know, put together some good ideas and then said, now the educators need to make that work. Um, and I think what was really exciting about this project was the notion of looking at what's the learning going to be, what does it need to achieve, and then designing um, a building that would actually achieve that. And you know, one of the exciting components of that was, as much as I said that it was an enormous task taking that on, I also had an incredible team of you know, thinkers, educators, um, and learners um, that were prepared to really dig deep into thinking about schooling differently. And that was a great opportunity to do that. You talk about the learning to be. Can you, can you tell us what's the vision behind this? Yeah, I think our tagline or our school motto probably sums that up, and that's you know, tomorrow today, and that's making today's learning actually relevant in tomorrow's world. And a lot of what we looked at was that a lot of the learning that we were involved in within schools, and it's changing, but a lot of the learning we were involved in was actually helping kids prepare for the past rather than the future. And when you look at the World Economic Forum Skills for 2030, you start to see they're totally different to the sort of skills that we focused on maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. And what we had to do was really look at how do we actually provide an environment that enables that kind of learning to become part of the student's world. And a lot of, a lot of it was reflecting back on my own schooling. Um, I went to a very traditional school in London for part of my schooling. 
um, and then for the second part to quite a progressive school. And what was quite different between the two was the focus of the school. One was very much on the past, the other was very much on the future. One of the things that we always heard in school was that notion of you wait till you get out into the real world. And part of my focus with this school is that school is the real world and our connection to the precinct, to the universities, to Lot 14, to the zoo, the botanic gardens, to you know, what the whole CBD is just alive with opportunities. It is making the school a real place, a real world place. So that's, that's an exciting component of it. Yeah, as the, as the school was being developed, it was really clear that we sat right in the heartland of the health and sciences. Um, and that's, that's become even more so with Lot 14. Even though there's a high technology component, um, there's quite a strong component that sits within the health and sciences. So the idea was that it provided an opportunity for students that have a really strong desire to follow that as a pathway to really support them through it. And the focus was to really uh, develop mentors with those students, to develop opportunities within the precinct for them to have real-world mentors working with them, to create opportunities that you don't normally get in a school because within three minutes you can walk to those locations um, and have those, those connections that normally are an excursion but are just part of our normal school day. And I, and I think part of it is that it's less of a program, more of a pathway. So the aim behind it is it, it's not a, a class or a group of kids that um, you know, sit together and do health and science. What it is, it's those students that have identified that as a, a pathway that they really would like to pursue. And then what we do is we work with them as a school to help them through that pathway to a high-level course at Year 12 and then beyond school. What we also look at is traditionally students would navigate their way through that. Um, and what we're doing is we're using mentors to work with the students to navigate their way through it and provide you know, unique opportunities that help them see aspects of that pathway. So I'll give you an example. Simplistically, a student will say, well, you know, part of the health and STEM pathway for me is to become a doctor. What we would hope is by the time they've reached stage two of their um, year 12, that they will have seen all of the other health pathways that are adjacent to being a doctor um, and see how some of those actually provide them with a pathway that may give them more meaning or an opportunity to do things where they have a strong passion. So to give you an example, we're doing an immersive uh, piece of work with the dental school um, because traditionally students don't look at dentistry, they look at it as a dentist, but they don't look at all the other components that go with it as an anaesthetist or you know, um, doing some of the CAD work around the design of uh, implements that go in the mouth. So. It's really helping them understand the variations that sit within some of those courses. One of the things that we talk about is 20% of our students' learning actually being in the precinct. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're out of school during that time, but they're connected to the precinct as part of that. And the connections with the universities and um, yeah, a number of the organisations within Lot 14 is really making that come alive. Oh, and you're using AI, artificial intelligence as well, of course. So it's looking at how AI will interact with students and personalise the learning um, and really help them actually connect with it. And, you know, rather than waiting for the next step, it enables them to know what to do for the next step. I think that sense of excitement in all your planning is coming through. What's it like for the students walking in every day, every week of this program? It's really interesting, and I, th I think this is where I reflect, you know, differently on it. Yeah, as an adult, we look at it and we go, this is absolutely the best. A student, it becomes their norm. 
they don't have a frame of reference to come from that says this is very different to what education normally is. And so it's, it, you know, as much as our students engage brilliantly with this, you know, there are times they just see it as what you do in school and the way that schools are. Um, our, our students work um, highly collaboratively. Um, and one of the things that we've noted is that as students move into tertiary learning or even into workplaces, very few of them now are siloed where a person works alone on a particular project or a particular thing or studies alone. And yet schools were very much about a teacher in a class with their students doing their own thing. So we work in class sizes that can be up to 90 students with three or four teachers working with that group of students. Our learning's very connected, so a student won't go to a maths lesson or an English lesson. Um, they go to lessons that have quite strange names. They'll go to a, a, global, a global perspectives lesson or they'll go to a STEM lesson um, or a lifestyle choices lesson. And the learning is purposefully connected within it because what we've seen is, you know, in real life, we don't do 40 minutes of maths at 2 p.m. Um, and then move to something else. How did that play out in COVID times? There are, there's two components to that. One is that when we went into lockdown, our students had to work from home. It was actually quite a seamless transition. We don't have paper, for example, so they work digitally um, on all their work. Um, and so the notion of working at home was not that different to the way that they would connect with a teacher and access their learning. But what was highly different about it was the fact that they absolutely missed the social connection and the social learning. And for our teachers, uh, we had to work really hard around designing the social learning within a remote context. And so instead of um, a lesson time being focused directly around curriculum, there was a strong focus around how do you build that social learning and that social connection into a virtual learning environment. And you know, I think in history, it's probably one of the few times we've had students rushing back to school going, I love school, I want to be back at school, because we realised just how much the social component was a significant part of it, and just that connection. We also see how clearly it impacts on mental health when we don't have it. And so, you know, that's something that as a school, you know, we have a lot of supports for young people around mental health, because when that social connection is lost, what we see is that mental health actually struggles uh, quite dramatically during that period. One thing I'd like to move you a little towards is we've talked about how Botanic High and the students benefit from being in the centre of Adelaide. So, so just wondering, how does Adelaide itself, its life and its, its identity, how does Adelaide benefit from having the school right in its heart? Mm. Oh, look, I think there's, there's probably a number of ways. The first way is that when we only have one city high school, there are a number of students that just couldn't access high-level education within, within the city. So one, it's broadened that. Um, and it's meant that a greater number of students can access their learning within the city. In terms of what it contributes to the city, you know, we've worked very hard that we're not parasitic in our relationship with all of the organisations that we have a relationship with, and we look at how we actually contribute back into those organisations. And it's interesting that at times you feel like you're taking um, so much from an organisation and then when you talk to them, they say, yeah, it's just amazing working with your young people. It just it invigorates our staff. You know, it gives them a sense that there's a future, a, a positive future, and that there is succession for the work that they're doing. So it has, it has that impact. I think the other part is that these young people, our aim is for them not to need to move interstate or overseas to work. You know, that will still be an option. But what we want is for them to have a place next door that has just as much excitement and just as much um, attraction to them and a place for them to stay. So I think as a city, it means that we will keep our bright minds and our creatives and our entrepreneurs 
and our artistic talents, you know, within our state. And it won't mean they won't travel overseas, but the attraction is there to return as well as part of that. And that's and we're seeing that more and more. Um, we're seeing a, a younger profile of person that's wanting to still stay in Adelaide and still achieve a lifestyle with it. And I think um, you would have probably had contact with Stone and Chalk, who have really created a social construct within Lot 14 for entrepreneurs and young people to really connect as part of being in a city. Another connection. Tell us about being so close to the Botanic Gardens that you can touch them. What's that like? Particularly with the focus on well-being that obviously drives a lot of your vision. Yeah. Um, a lot of the school design um, was biophilic by design. So effectively, it was really trying to make the, the inside of the building feel connected to the outside um, and very much connected to the natural environment. And I think one of the things that designers have achieved and almost achieved it too well is that as you're inside the building, there's a single flow of air, so air never circulates twice. So there's always a sense that it's not stuffy, it's actually fresh. And also the visual connection to the outside means there's times that as you walk through the building, you're within the uh, treetops. There's other times that you're at a groundscape. There's other times that you're well above that. Um, and no matter where you are in the building, there's no room that is blocked from the view. So the way in which you actually live within that building actually utilises all of the qualities of the parklands so that you actually feel as if you're in a very relaxed environment. When I said it was designed so well um, that it almost backfires is that students actually don't want to go out of the building and spend time outside because there is that sense that you're almost outside by being inside. Because of your focus on well-being, there's also a lot of physical fitness going on. How do you fit that in to a vertical school? Just don't use the lifts. But seriously, we, look, we, we, don't, we have a very large gym within the school. But what we do have is we have access to Park uh, 12 and Park 10. Uh, which are significant areas. The, the Park 12 um, is, is a wonderful space. Park 10 is a wonderful space. And you know, effectively, there are sports fields, there's sporting facilities. We also have the athletic stadium that's at Mile End. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of resources that we have access to. Do we need more? Always need more. Um, you know, with, with young people, we could, we could use any form of sporting facility that's available. So I think one of the things that we've learnt is that Young people, regardless of you know, age, love to actually get out and use spaces. And so one of the things that we've done, although we're in the parklands, is that we really encourage our kids to grab you know, picnic blankets. And we've got branded picnic blankets for the school to go and sit out on the parklands, to grab um, a whole range of outdoor games. And some of those are things like Jenga, um, even grabbing packs of cards, you know, and those sorts of things. And having a social construct to just mix with other people and you know, have a bit of exercise or just a social opportunity together. What you've said continuously is conveying this wonderful sense that this is the real world. What, how, what do the students think of being in such a school within the city? Um, I think there's a large range of students that really feel that there's something special about it. It, you know, for them, um, there's a sense that it's one of two uh, wonderful schools that sit within Adelaide and they've got the opportunity to go to it. As I said before, there's also a number of students for whom it's just, it's their normality. It was a natural choice and it's where they go, it's where I do my learning, it's where I've, you know, I'm going to grow up with my friends. So there's a level of normality that sits with it as well. And what's really interesting, it's not until they bring guests in or 
uh, students from another school who sort of you know stand there for a while with their jaws on the ground going, wow, this is amazing. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, this is where we go to school. You started, I think, with, was it 350 students? Is that right? What's the demand like now? And, and can you see it rising? Demand's actually incredible, um, and we're, we're really having to manage that through a capacity management plan in that the demand is greater than we have places for. So we begin next year with 1,250 students, which is our capacity. We don't have the capability of getting any bigger or, or growing extra spaces. Um, so that's a challenge in itself. It's also a reflection of the, um, the demand for the school um, and people seeing it as a, as a, a good place to go um, for their children. So you know, it is a challenge for our state government, and so already we're seeing um, a number of other schools being built to respond to that. But I think one of the things for our, for our students is that you know, when, when they see that level of capacity being filled um, and they realise that there are people that are not able to get a place, it does, again, create that uh, notion that it is a special place for them. You've grown effectively fourfold in three years. It's planned growth. Um, so we started with years eight and nine, and then each year after that we bring another year level in. So effectively it's staged as that occurs. But, yeah, it's really fascinating when you, you, you raise that as a question because we start with a small group that have access to the full building. When the next group come in, they have less access because there are more people. So next year when we're completely full, you know, part of what we've had to do is we've had to build a very, very strong culture within the school so that as groups come in, that culture continues to be built in the direction that we've planned rather than based on the direction of those that come in. Um, and that's as much for staff as it is for students. So we have quite a, quite a different day structure that accommodates that. So our, our staff, for example, start at 8.25 in the morning and our students start at 9.25. And what that means is that we have around about an hour with our staff each day of the week. And on a Wednesday, we have an hour and a half um, in what we call our collab. And that's where you have that opportunity to really work together, build that culture, plan for students as part of it. And that's quite unique. We have no after-school meetings. School finishes at four. And so staff have no after-school meetings at all as a result of that structure that we've built in. Tell us about the planned leadership for the students. Um, it's interesting because the, the, le the leadership actually started before the school opened. So one of the things that uh, made a decision on was that when you have a school that doesn't actually exist, when the students come in for that first time, how, how do you create a sense of ownership and a sense of belonging and a sense of having a say in the development of the school rather than arriving at a school where everything is organised and planned for you? So six months out of the school opening, once we knew our enrolled students, we then uh, went through a process of them applying to become part of a, of, of a leadership team. And so we started the school with a year eight and year nine leadership team that had been working together, planning and really acting as a, a, as a group that tested a lot of the things that we were looking at within the school well before the school opened. And it was even quite fascinating because even on the first day when we had Ali Clark and um, you know, ABC in our foyer and they wanted to interview some students and they said, oh, you know, will the students know anything about the school? And we said, well, why don't you talk to a couple of our school leaders? And there was how can you have school leaders when it's your first day? Um, but these, these students were able to show other students around. They were able to articulate what it was that we were doing. Um, and I think that was quite inspired in a way because what it meant was that throughout that very first year, culturally, we had a very clear understanding of student voice within the school. 
And that's perpetuated on to the point where as those students have moved through, they are our senior leaders and they're mentoring the younger leaders that come through. One thing that's coming through your voice is, is the sense of pride in being the foundation principal of Botanic High. Can you tell us about that? I don't know if proud is really the word I'd probably, probably use. I think you know, on a daily basis, it's just plain hard work. But there are, there are those moments in time, and you know, it happened the other day, I was literally just having a conversation with a student, and I think where that really comes through for me is when that conversation is a really rich conversation about their learning, um, how they can see their pathway to a future, how they've valued the way that the staff work with them and the opportunities they've had. That's probably the part that gels the most with me. In terms of the, the notion of being proud of what's been achieved, I, I'll never see it achieve what I want it to achieve because there's always the next step, another version, another, another iteration. But you know, for me, it's more about satisfaction when I have those conversations with students or I see the learning that they're achieving and it's just phenomenal to see some of that. Any key messages? For me, as much as our school you know, is a school in the city, one of the things that we're really proud of is that it's a school for all students. And I think one of the things that people quite often look at is they look at it as quite a, um, a phenomenal building um, and a building that must only be accessible by those students that are highly intelligent or those students that you know, have uh, been selected for the school. It's a school that caters for a massive range of student backgrounds. And I think the part that we've worked really hard on is that, that piece around equity and making sure that no matter a student's background, home life, situation, that when they're at school, they feel the same as others, that they feel that their, you know, their home life is not an impairment for their ability to learn. Um, and, and when we look at the, the variation of background that students come from, you know, huge trauma, um, we've got students that you know, may not be fed for a period of time. And then we've got students that come from incredibly you know, wealthy and um, well, you know, well-versed backgrounds. So there's that whole range. And I think that notion that students are able to work together and feel that whilst they're at school, there's a level of um, equity between them and their ability to learn is the same is a really powerful part of the learning that takes place at the school. It's also, for many students, the school, the end of school is the end of their formal education. Um, and that's usually because of a background where they haven't experienced either tertiary learning or other forms of education beyond school within their family. And so one of the things that's really powerful around the connections with the precinct is that, you know, no matter the background of these students, they see the university as just a second learning place at this stage. Um, it's not a place you go to after school. It's a place you go to whilst you're at school. And even that notion that a number of our students will be doing university subjects in year 12 as part of their year 12, you know, furthers that. So what are your visions for your students? Um, I suppose at the end of the day, you know, my vision is probably different to their parents' vision. And as a parent of two young men, um, you know, I've, I've watched my own children go through school and I've thought about what a parent desires for their child. And for a lot of parents, we're hardwired into the expectation around you know, going to university or doing a particular thing or having a particular job. And I think what we're really doing is we're, we're trying to build the capacity of young people to become job makers rather than job takers. And that notion of you know, taking control of a pathway and you know, when employment 
for a particular skill that you have is not there? How do you become reskilled, relearn, and you know make yourself available to become employable or create your own employment? Um, uh, that situation. So the notion of the simplistic view that you do school, you go to university, you get a job, has to change. And I think what we have to look at is how we actually have multiple pathways and we're constantly relearning, reinventing and rebuilding ourselves as people that can do various things at various times. This must be getting a few people really watching you as a case study, is it not? Yeah, we we are involved in a, a national project at the moment um, where we're really focusing very much on the capabilities uh, for the future. Um, and part of that is that the the way in which university entry is based is around an ATAR. And what we're seeing is the ATAR does not necessarily provide the potential for success. What it does is it's a selection for university entry. What we also see, though, is that there are certain capabilities that mean that through selection, if those capabilities link to particular courses, there's a greater chance that those students will be successful as they move through those courses or even into employment. So it's really helping students understand those capabilities but then share them in a way that helps them get selected for the right sort of courses, the right sort of employment and the right sort of pathways. And we often talk about the fact that you can't be what you haven't seen. And I know that sounds a little limiting, but quite often if you haven't seen something, it doesn't spark that notion of what you can be. And so that becomes very much a part of it as well. This podcast is brought to you by the Adelaide Economic Development Agency. Follow us at Experience ADL on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or visit experienceadelaide.com.au for everything you need to know about visiting, living, working, studying and investing in Adelaide. Adelaide.